Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io/ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information you never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials so it's best to always pack a columbia pfg solar stream elite hoodie to protect against the sun i mean it provides great protection and it's really breathable so you don't get hot that's a win-win columbia pfg has a lot of great gear so before you head out on the water head over to columbia.com pfg to shop their performance fishing gear Hello and welcome to Bad Manners. This is the podcast that takes you inside Britain's stately homes and tells all the tales the guidebooks don't. My name is Tom Horton and I'll be your host. As a comedian, I'm not really bothered about the facts and figures. I just want the juicy stuff. So I'm on a mission to find out the frightening, filthy and downright jaw-dropping stories of these stately homes and the people in them. Welcome back to Bad Manners, everyone. On this episode, I'm on a top-secret mission. Now, I can't tell you where I am, or what I'm doing, or who I'm talking to, or what I'm talking about. I can give you a clue. So, I'm stood outside an unassuming building in Milton Keynes. It's very grey. And I'm reading the Telegraph crossword from the 13th of January, 1942. And the first clue is one across, a stage company, six. I think that might be a troop. That's what I'm going for. Four across, the direct route preferred by the roundheads. Five and three. Um, and that's where I get stuck. <laughs> I've done one code break. Damn. <laughs> this may seem mundane to you, but it's actually very relevant because I am at Bletchley Park, the secret base of the code breakers of World War II. It's here that the head of the SIS, Sir Admiral Hugh Sinclair, quietly recruited the country's brightest and best mathematicians, puzzle solvers and service professionals to develop the intelligence-gathering code-breaking crack force. Away from London and the threat of air raids, and out of sight from the blissfully unaware public, the 10,000 staff would beaver away, in secret, behind the gates, trying to break the Nazi codes, like a bunch of nerdy espionage Oompa Loompas. And I've been told to wait for a woman called Christina, if that is her real name. As I'm looking around, I can see the suburban houses over there. And then you just met with this big Tetris blocks of grey. And, and everyone around here is either wearing a deerstalker or shades. Everyone looks like a spy, apart from the children who look like children. There's lots of children. Maybe, that, maybe, they, maybe they are. They're tiny spies. They're tiny, tiny German spies with lunchboxes and teddy bears. Oh, 
Hang on, Christina's here. Hi, Christina, how are you? Well, nice to meet you. Thanks yes, for having us. Are these, are these spies that you're recruiting? Uh, no spies at Bletchley Park. Are you sure? <laughs> Have you vetted them, though? <laughs> they look dodgy to me. <laughs> is it used for sort of working at all any- anymore? Is it? It's purely a museum. But then you would say that, wouldn't you? Yeah, none of us work for the Secret Service. I can guarantee that. I haven't got the pay level for sure. that. <laughs> OK. <laughs> well, I'll believe you. But my guard is up because I don't know what I don't know who to trust around here. <laughs> Bletchley is now a vibrant heritage site and museum, and we're here to meet two of the current dream team. Yeah, I'm Dr. Tom Cheesome. I'm research officer here, so I get to be in charge of all the facts that go out to the public. You know, arbiters of the truth, if you if you like. Facts that go out to the public. That makes it sound like you keep some of the facts to yourself. <laughs> it's already got quite secretive. I wasn't expecting it straight off the back, but you're saying there's a few bits that you're keeping. It's to a yourself. big complex story. A lot of mythology around it. Lots of people have heard of Bletchley Park, but haven't got quite an accurate idea of what went on here and what's important and what wasn't. So it's about passing all of that knowledge and making sure that when we produce an exhibition or podcast like this everything that people see is as accurate as we can make it and erica accuracy is important but being interesting is also key so <laughs> well what a slam on the doctor already <laughs> so, so he's I'm the not paid to be interesting. yeah yeah he's, paid he's to be clever. Clever. and i'm the one who's actually i'm the interpreter <laughs> exactly i'm the exhibitions manager so my job is to create and maintain all the bits that visitors coming to bletchley park will see okay, so, so basically Dr. Tom is the code and you, Erica, are the code breaker. Is that about right? I think that's probably fair. Yeah. That's fair? Yeah. I like good. that analogy, that? yeah. I think that's that. good. So, yeah, we're just walking up to the actual building now and it's beautiful. The hedges are well trimmed. There are these trees that look like sort of anorexic mushrooms. What are these called? Willows, I think. Is that just a willow tree? Oh, that's just a willow tree. <laughs> I don't know why I assume everything is not what it seems in this place. And two quite big dragons, I'm going to say, at the front of the... Griffins, I think. Griffin, are they griffins? I think so, yeah. Oh. The griffins are placed either side of the front door. I guess that makes it a griffin door. Can I be honest? When I first came into this building, I sort of was transported back to boarding school a bit. And I went, this would make a good boarding house. Some people do say it has a sense of the Hogwarts about it. It has the look of a house that's grown organically, but it's all fake. They've actually made it look as if it's been around for far, far longer. It is smaller than an enormous palace, but it is still a fair-sized country house. This feels like a Gryffindor common room, do you know what I mean? Yeah, with the wood panelling and With the everything. wood panelling and stairs and, going all around. And, and the marble columns and... Exactly. Yeah. Are there ghosts in here as well? Not that I know of. No moaning myrtle in the toilet or a basilisk underneath the, <laughs> underneath the ground. If there is, we haven't discovered it yet. <laughs> I like that positivity, though. It's like, oh, like, we haven't discovered it yet, but that doesn't mean it's not there. Yeah, well, it's game. We don't know what we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that is the quote of the day. Yeah. <laughs> well, Bletchley Park, the current mansion, is built in about 1880 by a local gentleman, and then he very quickly sells it on to a family called the Leon family. Herbert Leon and Fanny Leon. He was a local MP, a London stockbroker, a big influential name in the area and politically as well. In 1927, Herbert dies, leaving Fanny in the house. And then she passed away in 1937. So in the aftermath of Fanny, which is <laughs> something we've all had That's to struggle my, with through our days. My new novel title. <laughs> <laughs> what happened to us? <laughs> it's never easy when you've got a character called Fanny to do anything seriously, is it? Um, <laughs> people, yeah. um, but, so in the aftermath of Fanny, 
What happens to the house then? Eventually, most of it's bought up by a man called Hubert Faulkner, who's the local property developer. So Faulkner buys this place and he's going to build houses on it. We're close to the railway station. You can get down to London in about an hour in the 40s, just as you can today. So this is his plan, but he doesn't get very far before the, the spectre of war appears on the horizon. <sighs> that pesky mm. war. And this is when he's approached by Admiral Sir Hugh Sinclair from the Secret Intelligence Service. So Sinclair approaches Faulkner in about 1938, and he buys the mansion, an area around the mansion. And the reason he's looking for a place outside London is because if a war breaks out, the assumption is that London's going to be bombed. And they see bombing at that point in history approximately the same as we see nuclear weapons. It's something that's going to make life in London pretty much unlivable. You certainly can't run government or co-breaking operations from there. Yeah. Right. Now, let's talk about him. What sort of character is he? Is Quite he... a character is what yeah. we understand. So he's of a certain age. Give us the goss. He's a, a social fellow. He liked to party. He did. He yeah. liked to drink. He's also incredibly capable and an inspiring figure, clearly, amongst his staff. From a naval background, he's a captain aboard ships during the First World War. Then he's put in charge of naval intelligence and later in charge of the Secret Intelligence Service. The house is bought. Do they start working on it and making it secret and, and set up before the war? Or does the war happen and they go, right, guys, battle station, we want to start making it happen? When you say, right. did they prepare the site? No. Not really. No, they, don't no. do they, they arrived. They brought all their secret documents with them. But they don't bring any furniture. <laughs> that is so classic. Yeah, yeah. We have these accounts of coming into a room with a big yeah. pile of papers in the middle of the floor and no furniture to work on. Yeah, so and obviously the key obviously doesn't work. They can't just go down the road and get some bean bags quickly, can they? they well, how do they, where do they get the furniture from? Pretty deck chairs. No, the Germans have bagsied them all early in the morning like they always do around the pool. Christ. <laughs> At the start of the war, they're literally doing raids of government offices to get chairs and tables. Because really? that's how improvised this whole operation is. So it's all like this Mad Hatter's tea party of Iggledy Piggledy furniture everywhere. Everyone's guys on the chaise lounge. It's complete chaos. It's yes. chaos. But they're only here for a short period of time and then they head back to London again. So it is a dry run. Right. Yeah. So that's beneficial in the end. They learn a lot of these lessons. They improve a lot of these procedures before they come back again the next year. Yeah, when these codebreakers come here at the start of the war, they're generally young, well-educated, quite forward-thinking people. And they do seem to appreciate these lovely landscape gardens yeah. with flower beds and, and the lake. And it has a rose garden and a, a maze at the start. Unfortunately, these features start to be covered over by wartime huts quite quickly. And did you say there's a maze? There was a maze. Which, in the wartime, I'm just I'm just they're putting like, right, so you're a codebreaker, you've got to break this incredible code and the place you're doing it in is in the middle of a maze Go. so good luck getting to it i mean that's just like making it unnecessarily difficult for everyone isn't it the lake's beautiful there's not like a hidden submarine in the lake or anything like that no it's been drained a few times and all they found were like mugs mugs that are possibly being thrown in there by frustrated code breakers at one point <laughs> just chucking their coffee down i can't do it yeah <laughs> it's like impossible <laughs> There's one particular codebreaker called Josh Cooper who is known as being a, a complete eccentric. He's a really capable man, a complete patriot. He works himself to the bone for years on end for his country, but he's got these odd habits 
he kind of jumps into a room and bellows madly and then runs out again before anyone can work out what he's saying. He has this <laughs> habit of scratching the back of his ear behind his head. He's described as picking apples from an invisible tree behind his head. And there's a story wow. about how he's drinking a cup of coffee by the lake one day and he doesn't know what to do with the cup and he feels really awkward about it. So he just sort of throws the cup into the lake and walks off. I mean, socially inept, but give the man a code. So everything's kicked off in 1938. Let's just skip forward a year to 1939. And who is working at Bletchley? Everyone can see what's going to happen with Poland. So they come here a bit ahead of time. They do. In, okay, in, good. in August 1939, war breaks out on the 3rd of September. The 4th of September is when those new recruits start streaming in. Because another thing they've managed to do in the meantime is start to find new people. They know they're going to need reinforcement. They're going to need young um dynamic people and they're going to need people who can tackle modern machine ciphers as well so they tend to be more mathematicians than your classic codebreaker who's a linguist and a perhaps a classicist by so trade let, so let's this is the bit i'm fascinated in how do they recruit people and what are they looking for i mean the, it, the recruitment process has changed throughout the war obviously um pre-war um, the recruitment style was quite individualistic. It was very much identify individuals, or prior to the war, identify and individuals. how would they identify them? Would, like, over lunch go, my niece is a bit of a... Well, the right sort of folk. The if right, you know, oh, would it be the old tap certain... on the shoulder, winky, winky, kind of, there's a secret job going on somewhere in the country. Uh, really, it's using these old boys' networks, it's going to universities and asking around. There are people there who've done this work in the First World War right, who know the type. And this is the funny thing is that uh, it takes a codebreaker to spot somebody who might be good at codebreaking because you have this very particular set of skills yeah. <laughs> that are required. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes, you do. Intellect and knowledge, but also creativity and lateral thinking. Yes, right. And it's very hard. They, they always have problems during the war telling recruiters what's needed and they get lots of uh, at times again another resonance with the modern day they're being sent people who are uh, who, who have no qualifications of them being quite eccentric and they have to be told <laughs> sure. just because this person is a bit weird and likes puzzles it doesn't mean yeah, they're going to yeah, be a good yeah. code breaker we don't necessarily want Look, them i know he's got a feather in his hat <laughs> but it's not going to mean he's going to break the code With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, elevate your adventure by transforming your vehicle into a reliable Wi-Fi hotspot. Connect up to 10 devices up to 50 feet away from your vehicle, making it ideal for camping and road trips. Don't miss out on the fun. Embark on your next adventure today. Visit att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to check if you're eligible for a free trial. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Awards Watch says Liam Neeson is at his best. Don't miss In the Land of Saints and Sinners. Having left his dark past behind, retired hitman Finbar Murphy, played by Neeson, leads a quiet life in a remote coastal Irish town. But when a menacing crew of terrorists arrive, Finbar is drawn into a vicious game of cat and mouse, forcing him to choose between exposing his secret identity or defending his friends and neighbors. In the Land of Saints and Sinners, from Samuel Goldwyn Films and Sony Pictures Home Entertainment. Watch it now on digital. Rated R. What's this thing about them sending out uh, literally a crossword in the Telegraph and looking for that sort of thing? Is that myth? Did is it that happen? True? It happened yes. once and it recruits about six people. 
six people. And, it, and were they any, and they went, doesn't happen ever again. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> were, they, were, they, were they not good but, six? But the thing about the, the Telegraph crossword puzzle, which is what this was, was it, was it organised by the Telegraph entirely off its own bat, oh, really? ind- independently from the intelligence services, and then somebody at Bletchley or involved with Bletchley discovers this, uh, this uh, competition has gone on and decides to offer jobs to the winners. But it's not a, a concerted recruitment strategy and it only happens once. But hey. most of the time, they're not testing people t- to see if they can work here. They're not doing these competitions. They are just looking at their personality, mostly, and saying, are you the right sort? Are you from the right educational background? Especially with the female staff, we have a lot of what are known as Debs, debutantes, at yeah. the start of the war. And they are, they are literally friends of friends, friends of the family who are... Um, the, the sort of looking for bright women that won't blab, I think, is... Yeah, it's definitely the social it. background which is being emphasised above all else. They do need a certain level of intelligence, but also they're not going to get to work here unless they have the right connections. Yeah. Well, wasn't 75% of the workforce women? Yeah. Is that right? By the end of the war. By the end of the war. At the start of the war, it's about 50-50. But yes, what that indeed. 75% figure attests to is a big demographic shift because you stop having so many Debs and you start getting lots of young women who are in uniform because they've been conscripted. And they're sent here in large numbers just to run communications, to operate machinery, to do that sort of donkey work which this organisation needs. And that's why there are so many women here. Right, I see. How serious were they about people keeping secrets? They were obsessive. Obsessive. I think they, they took it too far. In hindsight, we can say that they, it caused problems because you had different teams that were so compartmentalised they couldn't talk to each other. And sometimes they needed to share information and they didn't. And that slowed them down. Yeah, wow. There is an occasion where an important Enigma cipher, which is used by the German Navy in the Mediterranean, is broken about two years later than it should have been because another team knew how to break it, but they didn't talk to each other. That's insane. So you marched in on day one, you sat down at a desk, this is your desk, this is what you do. You have a, an inbox on one side and you, you do something to these papers that come in and then you put them in the outbox and they're whisked off somewhere else. That is, you, that is your part of the yeah. jigsaw. That's all you know about your job here. I wanted to say actually on recruitment, secrecy was made very, very important during that process. Everybody had to abide by the Official Secrets Act. Uh, they had to sign a document saying they had, were going to abide by the Official Secrets Act. And there are veterans still alive today who are very wary talking about their wartime work because they signed that piece of paper. It's a problem for us trying to work out what happened because we talked to these people and they've, they've spent, if, even if they are willing to discuss it with us, they've spent a, a good chunk of their life trying to suppress it, trying to forget about it in case they let anything slip later because they're never told this is all going to be out in public and, and a massive a yeah. matter of massive public interest in 30 years' time, as far as they're concerned, it's never going to be revealed. So they do try and forget it. Then they have to dredge it all up again. And this is why I say, in hindsight, you can see the secrecy was taken a bit too far. During wartime, they are aware what a tightrope they're walking, breaking these codes and cyphers. If it gets back to the enemy, they can change their systems very easily yeah. and, then and then you're, cut that you're sort of intelligence off. Da- yeah, God, yeah, and then imagine. people will die. So you can't blame them for being obsessive at the time. Absolutely yeah. not. Are there any examples of people who did crack and just go mental and start shouting the secrets? Not in that way. Lots of mental breakdowns. There's a well-known story about Angus Wilson, who is later, he sets up the English department at the University of East Anglia. He's very well known in literary circles. Right. Um, He works here on Japanese codes and he has an office near the lake. And one day has, um, you know, he cracks and apparently takes off all his clothes and jumps in the lake. This is quite a common story. Oh, wow.
there were a few security breaches, people bringing people in or spies getting in from other countries. Yeah, so there's one, uh, there's one spy who's known to have worked here who is John Cancross, who was a spy for the Soviet Union. One of the Cambridge Five. The Cambridge Five are five Russian spies at Cambridge University. British, yeah, British nationals who met at Cambridge and became spies who managed to infiltrate various areas of government in the 1940s, 50s, 60s. Bastards. But he, he's working here and he, yeah. he's smuggling decrypts out in his trousers and sending these back to his Russian um, handlers for a bit. He doesn't actually work here very long. He doesn't like it here, so he gets shifted somewhere else. He's not actually a very good oh. spy. Is he not? No. Oh. You have lower-level security breaches as well, and I know of one occasion where somebody working in very lowly sort of machine work, she didn't understand the organisation she was part of, but she had been obviously briefed as far as secrecy goes. Mm-hmm. Um, she decided to have a visit from a friend of hers who worked in a munitions factory in Coventry. Right. Brings her down. They stay in the hostel together um and up, at one point she gives her friend her security pass and allows her to go into the park they walk <laughs> around by the lake they walk they go into the mansion and have a cup of coffee they go into the cafeteria they mix with all these highly secret people they don't go into any of the working spaces but it's still a massive breach of security yeah yeah obviously um this doesn't go unnoticed for very long Here yeah is this so, person wandering so what, do you, around. what do you do around here <laughs> i'm from coventry what <laughs> <laughs> just that, here for the day yeah yeah most of the time when people um, let stuff slip, they try and keep them close because they're a security risk. So if you let them go, you never know who they might, they, you know, if they lose their job over it, they might go home and tell their family, they might go to their favorite pub back home and yeah, tell everyone sure. there. So you want to keep them close yeah, yeah, don't, and keep them, in, keep them in work and keep an eye on them. So we've talked a lot about the people working here and what was going on, but what does it actually mean to be a code breaker? What are they actually doing And let's talk about the Enigma machine. Okay, so let's start off by saying Bletchley Park doesn't just do Enigma. Bletchley Park doesn't just do codes. (laughs) It doesn't just do codes, it does ciphers. But (laughs) see, straight away, what's the difference between a code and a cipher? Because I don't know. A code is when you swap a word for a a, a secret code word or or a, a, a set of characters that represent that word. By so some pre arranged like system. The, the fox flies yes. by midnight. The swallows that could be a fly code, over exactly. Moscow. Right, okay, cool. Fox can mean whatever you want it to mean. Sure, okay. A cipher is when you um, you can scramble or change the letters of words by a predetermined pattern. So, a classic okay. example is the Caesar cipher, which just shifts characters in the alphabet. Right. Uh, or you can oh, have yeah, yeah okay. a transposition cipher, which gets the same characters but mixes them into a random order. So, it will look like a random order. So right, okay, I see that. You get a message that is completely unreadable. So when you're going for a cipher, like E is the most commonly used letter in the alphabet. And so you look about what the most commonly used symbol is, that would probably represent an E most likely. Is that yeah, right? So that's Frequency what we call frequency analysis. Analysis. Am I, am I, Do I get the job? <laughs> you would certainly, that, this is something that would be taught to people start to Bletchley, but it's a very basic technique. And by World War II, obviously, they have ciphers. Sure, all right. Thank you, Doctor. <laughs> uh, Everyone please, has to start please, somewhere. Please just tell us, tell us how you really but feel. The, the, Don't shoot it in any way. This stuff is iterative. <laughs> it does build on what came before. No, but yes, yeah, right. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. So um, the ciphers they're using in World War II are of a more uh, high level, and, and they're not I, I'm assuming because they're vulnerable. 10,000 people going, they're not vulnerable you know, to e, frequency. It analysis. could be an E, actually. <laughs> if it needed to be said. Thank you, recruit. 8,905. <laughs> but we've got that. <laughs> yes, right, okay, cool. So they do more slightly... But some of the techniques they're using are very simple. 
With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, elevate your adventure by transforming your vehicle into a reliable Wi-Fi hotspot. Connect up to 10 devices up to 50 feet away from your vehicle, making it ideal for camping and road trips. Don't miss out on the fun. Embark on your next adventure today. Visit att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to check if you're eligible for a free trial. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Awards Watch says Liam Neeson is at his best. Don't miss In the Land of Saints and Sinners. Having left his dark past behind, retired hitman Finbar Murphy, played by Neeson, leads a quiet life in a remote coastal Irish town. But when a menacing crew of terrorists arrive, Finbar is drawn into a vicious game of cat and mouse, forcing him to choose between exposing his secret identity or defending his friends and neighbors. In the Land of Saints and Sinners, from Samuel Goldwyn Films and Sony Pictures Home Entertainment. Watch it now on digital. Rated R. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Do you have any other examples of techniques that they used? Well, if we're talking about Enigma, it's all about human factors. It's all about mistakes that the German operators are making when they're sending messages and when they're enciphering messages. Um, and this is because Enigma is vastly complicated. It's, it produces about 103,000 million, million, million permutations to this machine, which is right. about twice the number of seconds that have elapsed since the beginning of the universe. And the machine itself It's is, quite a big number. Yes, it's, right. it's an encryption machine. You don't type it in and it sends out your, your message. It basically, you, you are a person with your message on a notepad or something. You then press buttons and it will give you the, the alternative letter that you want to use. If you have T-H-E, it will give you the alternative wow. X-B-C. That then is a message that you will send out via radio or via whatever I mean, I mean, means. We talk, we talk about cracking the code. Who, the, who invented the code? Like, that's quite an achievement in its own, just to come up with like, how we actually made it a thing. Yeah, a man called Arthur Scherbius invented Enigma towards the end of World War I. He's a German, yeah. is he? Mm-hmm. He is a German. Right. He hopes the machine's going to be commercially successful, and people like banks and big businesses are going to use it for their communications. Is that why he made it? For, it yeah. He never makes a lot of money off it before he's run over by a carriage and killed. But he does patent the machine in a number of different countries, including countries that were on the alloys during the war. So it's not a machine that's completely mysterious. People, I mean, the name would suggest it is, but people know that the Enigma machine exists. It's a commercial way of keeping information secret. Enigma is an early machine in a whole range of modern machine ciphers that are coming available at that point in history. So it's very much not unique. It's not uniquely secure. It's actually, there are much better machines in use during so World so War II than Enigma. It's just no, not, for, not by a long way. And it's worth saying, even though it's not the most complex machine, it should have been unbreakable had it been used properly. And so can you give examples of them slipping up? One of the um, typical mistakes they make is to use predictable messages. And so this allows the code breakers to do what's called a a known plain text attack. If you can take a guess at what's in the message, they call this a crib. If you can, if you have a good crib at what a message might contain, you can sort of reverse engineer what the cipher is doing and work out how the machine is set up. And then you can use that same cipher if it's used for other messages to break all those messages as well. If you end every message with the words Heil Hitler, for example. (laughs) Yeah, sure. 
Or every weather I think report. I've got a German message here. <laughs> every weather report starts with weather report. Or a really good example. All right, yeah. Um, the head of a section here called Hut 6 working on this traffic, Gordon Welshman, he writes down during the war that there is a man as a radio operator in the desert in North Africa who sends the same message every day at the same time, which is nothing to report. <laughs> the key thing to understand is, is the picture keeps shifting. You don't break Enigma once and then put your feet up for the rest of the war and go, job done. You need to keep breaking the cipher. Every time it changes, it changes normally at midnight every day. Mm-hmm. And on all these different Enigma keys in use by the German, different parts of the German military. So you need to keep breaking them. You need to keep looking for cribs. Quite soon after they start breaking Enigma, those sheets stop working because the pattern they're relying on in the messages is removed by the Germans. So is it, yeah, they identify there's a weakness and they remove yeah. the weakness. So they need to resort to other techniques. Now that I've got a sense of the space, if you would be so kind as to show me around and if possible, see the Enigma machine. This is just communications in this block. Yeah, they had a whole building just given over to getting information into the park and then out again afterwards. Ah, right. So this is the pigeonhole of the building. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, the site. Oh, I've been handed an Enigma message by a doctor. That's hot off the radio, that is. 2014-13. And then a, bu- a series of letters. U-J-R-T-W. Right, so... How would I even begin to start? Well, we'll go and look at the machine and then I'll show you how we can decrypt this message. Yes, please. Lead on, Dr. Tom. This is very exciting. So there's a sort of industrial black box, which is very modern, and it's now being opened by Dr. Tom. And then now we have very an old wooden box inside. Two old wooden boxes, one smaller than the other being placed down carefully. It's actually quite tense. It's exciting. It's essentially a typewriter, but it's got buttons on top and then other sort of connections down its face. And then three sort of metal, what do you call them, cogs? We call them rotors, we refer to them as rotors. They're not cogs because they don't engage with a gear. Thank you very much. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, and now this is this is how I now need to look at my message. Yes. So this is an original, I should say, an original German Army Air Force Enigma machine. So On the front of the machine, it has plugs corresponding to the different letters, and it swaps the letters in pairs before the current is fed into the rotors. Ooh. Normally, the Germans are using ten cables, so they're swapping twenty letters. And the number of permutations you get from 10 cables is about 150 million, million, million. That's a lot. I'm going to try and crack this code. First off, we need to set those numbers 20, 40, 30. on the windows there. Okay. Uh, 14 to 13. And then oh, 3, 2, 1. Good. 20, 14, 13. So if you notice anything about what these characters are, and you can use your cheat sheet on the back, on the label there. So now that this is out in order, so that's, do I type this out? Yes, so the important thing to should... understand is, once you type a letter, the rotors move. So if you make a mistake, so you've got to back. put the rotor back. Okay. Let's open a U. It's an H. And J. Hi. 
I'm suspect this might be hi Tom. I think you might be able to start cribbing this message. Well, it's either hi yes. Tom or it could be Hitler. <laughs> we don't know yet. Uh, this, is, this is so exciting. So hi Tom. <laughs> Hello Enigma. W, I think it might be a welcome. Uh, Z, O. Welcome, I was correct, which I imagine CZ is going to be two. Welcome oh, to, hi Tom, welcome to BP, XXXX. Well, do you know what? We may be at war with them, but they're, they're being very they're friendly. Lovely, they're being yes. very friendly with the X's. <laughs> That's it for this episode. I'm going to celebrate my victory over the Germans with a lovely cup of tea. We'll be back at Bletchley in a future episode, because we've made it this far, and we haven't even mentioned Benedict Cumberbatch in the imitation game. So join us next time to find out just how accurate the film is. Spoiler alert, not very. All the details of the code breaking in the film are pretty inaccurate, yeah. Until next time, thanks for listening. And remember, IOIXU, PVP, YB, LWDE. Thanks for listening to Bad Manners. If you like the pod, please share it with your friends. Rate it on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a review and make sure you spill the tea on any of your favourite Bad Manners that we could feature in future episodes. This podcast was produced by Atomized Studios for iHeartRadio. It was hosted by me, Tom Horton. It was produced by Willa Malensky, Rebecca Rappaport, and Chris Attaway. It was executive produced by Faye Stewart and Zad Rogers. Our production manager is Caitlin Paramore and our production coordinator is Bella Cellini. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information what's up y'all janice torres here and i'm austin hankwitz we're the hosts of mind the business small business success stories a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's ruby studios and intuit quickbooks join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success from finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.